Well, are you going to choose an O-ring, X-ring, Z-ring, maybe a standard chain, a 520, a 525, 530, and is that a 116, a 118, a 120? What about the larger counter shafts Brocky installed? Uh, hang on, if that sounds like I'm speaking another language or just a bunch of gibberish, sit back and soak in some chain talk from experts. We've got one from DID Racing Chain, another from Regina Chain, two large and very successful and ubiquitous chain manufacturers. We're going to discuss the differences between X, O, and Z rings, and just what you should be shopping for the next time you replace your chain. But first, we got a story to tell. We're going to talk with Derek Mansfield about his new book, Notes from the Road, Volume 4. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tart. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. I'm Lyndon Poskett, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, one day we went to the mailbox and found a package there waiting for us. One that we didn't expect was coming. And it was the most interesting looking piece I think I've seen come through the mail. It's wrapped in brown paper. It's got string wrapped around it, tied up, you know, in a, in a cross fashion with a stamp of wax over the string. It's got to be the most interesting package I've seen arrive, most certainly at our mailbox for as long as I can remember. Coming up next, we're going to speak to the man that sent us that package, Derek Mansfield. Uh, Hi, I'm Derek Mansfield. Um, I live uh, very close to uh, Heathrow Airport in London, which is quite useful. And uh, I'm kind of semi-retired, so really, all I do is uh, ride motorcycles and write articles. So you've been a writer for a while, then? Oh yeah, I think from uh, I can I can actually remember primary school, but none of this, apart from copywriting in a kind of 
uh, 90s, well, about the last 10 years, really. Um, none of it's been uh, uh, what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do is write books, write articles. Finally, I'm writing articles, if not books yet. Well, one book. But. Where are you from originally? Oh, uh, a small village uh, north of London. Population, uh, when I lived there, was about, I think we were proud when it made a thousand people. So it was quite, quite small. <laughs> so is that how you became a rider, living in a small town? You, you find your first bike? Is it that one of those stories? No, not quite. Um, when I was at uh, uh, primary school, the thing I could do most of all, or the bet thing I could do best, was uh, was writing. I used to get kind of, you know, little badges for it and things like that. So I, I entirely loved it. Um, as for motorcycling, that came really in my teens um, when I was desperate for a motorcycle. Um, we, that is my family, didn't have the uh, money to buy one. So I used to uh, um, uh, kind of go around with our friends. You know, we used to go to the woods on a, a Greaves Enduro, as it was in those days, and have a high old time. But I never owned a, a motorcycle of my own, regrettably. I was going to ask you why you have a blog, because you have a blog there that you do a fair bit of writing on. Um, but I don't know if it's really a valid question now, because it sounds like writing is like, it's, it's sort of your roots right from public school or right from, from grade school. Uh, yes, I think it is, actually. Um, uh, I've always been, or I've known myself to be creative, and that creativity comes out in a lot of different uh, spheres. I wanted to uh, uh, draw and paint, but I was never really good enough. And at secondary school, um, I was trained in economics. Don't ask why, you know, kind of the business dream. I had no idea. But um, so I couldn't really do any. Uh, there was no creative outlet, if you like, for painting and drawing. So the closest I could get for my own creativity, really, all this time has been has been writing. And, and what I uh, find is, is there's that kind of nanosecond between the thought in the brain and getting it on the page so I can edit myself as I go along. And what I figure is if I make myself laugh, dear, dear, does this sound uh, um, conceited? But if I make myself laugh, then I think it's okay. Perhaps other people will do. How do you think someone else, maybe your friends, would describe you as a writer? Um, uh, okay. <laughs> a couple of my friends said that I write... Uh, um, a little bit like uh, uh, Jack Kerouac from back in the 60s, which is when I was a young man. And I, I personally like uh, an Irish writer who is so funny called J.P. Don Levy. He wrote The Ginger Man. This is going back to the 70s, so I guess not a lot of people remember it. But my friends are as old as me, so they do, and that's how they describe <laughs> my style. You have a book out now called Notes from the Road, Volume 4. What happened to Volume 1 through 3? They're still um, uh, being cogitated upon. So this is kind of like a Star Wars thing, you know, where they where they made the last one first or something thereabouts. Yeah, and you know, I didn't know about Star Wars when I when I did that. I really had no idea that they started at volume, or, you know, four or whatever it was. It was just that this is the fourth ride or long ride I'd ever done, and I thought I've got a bit of time, so let's do it. Why this one? It, it was. It was. Well, the others are really quite long. The um, volume three is uh, uh, a trip to Mongolia, and uh, that actually will be um, probably twice the size of the existing book. I only had three months uh, 
yeah, my time schedule was I had three months to uh, to write, edit, publish, print, and then uh, uh, get it on sale. So you know, it was uh, I had to write it really quite quickly. So volume three is going to be quite long. I'll probably combine volume one and two because they were two kind of separate journeys, fun in their own right. Um, but we now have five, six, seven, eight all in my brain. So it's kind of, you know, we're getting there. I don't need to tell you this, I'm sure, but this is not your typical motorcycle adventure book. No. Why not? Um, I learned from uh, Paddy Tyson. He's the... Uh, publisher of uh, Overland Magazine. And I do a few things with Paddy now and again. And Paddy said, you know, we're not really adventurers. We're motorcycle travelers. And I thought that is so true. So I've kind of taken on board that. And I I feel I'm a motorcycle traveler. Um, A lot of situations happen. And I guess the shorthand for that is adventures. And I just prefer it that way. I, I never seek... Um, to go off-road. But if you ride far enough, then the off-road comes to you and you deal with it. So really, I see myself as a, um, a traveler. And I'm sorry, Jim, because, you know, your radio station is, is uh, an adventure. But nonetheless, that's kind of how I feel for myself. Well, that's interesting you say that because we have loads and loads of listeners that don't go anywhere near adventure motorcycles. We we get emails from people who ride Harley Davidsons and and all manner of street bikes, and they listen because there's so much in common, you know. Really, and I mean, maybe it's the way we approach things. We don't we don't focus on knobby tires and and mud. Um, we focus yeah. on motorcycles, and and an adventure can be anything from you know riding around the world to heading out to, to check out the next town that you've never been to. It's um it, it's quite a wide and varied thing the adventure motorcycle field. So um, have no fear. You know, there's there's plenty of listeners here who will will never consider themselves adventure motorcyclists. Well, you, you know, Jim, I was coming back from uh, um, the kind of Iran-Iraq uh, border on a, uh, a Victory Vegas. I think this is uh, 2011, something like that. And on the way back, I thought I must find out what I have to do to become an adventure motorcyclist. So when I got home, I bought a, a Moto Guzzi Stelvia just so I could be part of the kind of the, the, the adventure pack, if you like. Not realizing at that time, I just bought the whole idea of, you know, big motorcycles, big adventures, et cetera, et cetera, having already achieved it on a on a fantastic cruiser. So I, I, I kind of, you know, I, I do my, I've been I've done marketing myself for many years. So I kind of, you know, bought the whole package because I'm easy to sell to. And there I was, adventure motorcyclist on a on a Moto Guzzi Stelvio, not a GS, obviously, but, but still. Um, and it's, I just, I, I look at myself at times and I think, God damn, you are dumb, boy. But, well, you know, we learn, we move on. And when you became an adventure motorcyclist through buying this motorcycle, what changed? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> it, was, uh, it, was, it was actually much harder work. I dropped the bike a lot more than I did, than, than I did on the Victory Vegas, that's for sure. Well, it's interesting, this conversation we're having about, you know, how motorcycles don't really define what you're doing as far as traveling, because in your book, you don't really talk about motorcycles. No, no, it's uh, my, if you like, my passion really is to meet people 
from other cultures and share their culture and find out just how they live their lives. Um, I choose to, uh, to travel to people on a motorcycle because I like motorcycling. But the passion really is meeting people probably more than actually being on the road with a bike. Did I say that? Did I hear a crash as my motorcycle fell over outside? <laughs> um, it's, it's just that it's people that really interest me. Above all else, it's people. Notes from the Road, uh, Volume 4. When it arrived for me, when you sent it, it came wrapped in a, in a, a brown uh, uh, paper that you would, one would use for mailing things and sealed with a wax seal. Is this how the books go out? Yeah. All the books? All the books. That's incredible. I mean, that has to be, that is without a doubt, the most unique delivery I've ever seen. I just, uh, I just think, Jim, if, if people are um, kind enough to buy my book and they're going to read it, then part of me, uh, uh, um, if you like, part of what I want to do is present them with a whole experience, not just a book. And it just occurred to me, you know, when I had the first orders, I just thought, now, wouldn't it be nice if it was wrapped up in brown paper and, and tied up with string? And then I think someone in the house suggested a bit of, uh, bit of sealing wax on the, on the top of it. And I, actually, I went to the post office and I tried to send it through the post like that without putting it in an envelope. But they told me things have got more modern these days and they can't, they can't accept string around parcels. <laughs> but there we are. Well, the book itself is not very large physically. As a matter of fact, it's it's a perfect size to be able to stick in the inside pocket of your motorcycle jacket as you ride, and it looks pre-worn. Uh, it's got a you know sort of an old faded look around the edges of the cover. It's um, it, it's got quite of uh, I want to say feel to it just by by picking up and looking the book. And I, I've never talked about a book like this before, so I have to tell you, I've, I've I've sort of you know been taken by it. But the other thing that really got me is the fact that when you start to read it, you realize that wait a second, that this book is not about motorcycles. You, you've really sort of tossed aside those things that we use our our jackets and our gear and our helmet and whatever else we ride with, and sort of got to the essence of why you're traveling. And, and you focus on your interactions with people, as you had said. What is this book? about uh, it's about the people I met on the ride um, I I just uh, okay this, this gets a little bit complicated but I'll try and explain um, I have a small business based in uh, Kiev in Ukraine and I've been now uh, commuting there really for about the last uh, 20 years it's changed at the same time um, with the uh, uh, the war in the east of Ukraine, if you like, um, Eastern Europe is changing as well. And what I was really interested in on this particular trip was to find out from other people what they felt about the war in the east, what they felt about the uh, uh, the changing um, economics, the, the the kind of miasma of fear that is now through, uh, that hangs above Ukraine and through a lot of Western, East, sorry, Eastern Europe too. And that was really what I set out to do, find out from people just how they felt. A lot of it, of course, is when I've, when it's passed through my brain and I've kind of rewritten it, it comes out, um, I hope certainly, uh, uh, more humorous. But um, that really was what I wanted to do. You, you read so much and you hear so much which is, shall we say, uh, fabricated to sell news, basically. 
and I just wanted to uh, to find out truly for myself. So I decided one one morning, let's go off and do that. So I uh, did just that. Normally in a book, some of the first things that anyone will ask when, when you talk about writing a book is, you know, you've got to do your who, when, where, and why thing. You don't really say where, you don't really say when, you don't really say who in the book. Why did you choose that sort of method for writing? Well, um, not putting the who in was to uh, protect the innocent, I think, really. Well, I sort of um, suspected that one. And, and that's easy to, to, to do, you know, for, for those reasons, because you're, you're sort of saying intimate things about these people. Although I think if they read them, they're going to know exactly who they are. But yeah, the sure. where and the when, even the why. Well, okay. The, uh, leaving aside the why for the moment, um, the kind of the journey itself if you drive, if you uh, uh, drive or ride across Europe, there are no borders, and to a very large extent, if you miss the tiny signs as you go across the border, you have no idea where you are. The language changes, but if you're not speaking to people at that particular moment, um, you won't notice the, the language change. You might see it on the signs, so you'll get uh, in one country you'll get a lot of hard consonants and kind of slashes. And another one, you get kind of the whole, all their words seem to be decorated with uh, with butterflies. So you can ride across a whole country in Europe in three hours and, and kind of not speak to anyone. Um, and what I, what I really thought was that, you know, this is actually one region. We have different languages, but the people are the same. You know, they, they actually want the same things. They talk about the same things. And I just, I, I saw no point in actually saying, well, we went down the M25 or we went on the N174 for 57 uh, kilometers and then turned left or right or anything else. Half the time, I wasn't quite sure where I was going anyway, so it didn't make a great deal of difference what the roads were. Some roads were beautiful. Others had holes in them. I think that's enough. When you're traveling, you're staying in accommodations, I'm assuming, from what I've read. You know, I, I got to say, Derek, I, I'm hesitant to ask you too many questions about the contents of the book because the, the questions will answer um, or will give information that isn't in the book that I don't really want. You know, when I read it, I, I think I fell into, I think the way you wanted to write it is that ah. you don't want those details. They're not important. That's not the essence of the story. And I think to focus on them is almost detracting from the main line of the story. That's exactly it, actually, Jim. And what I found is that other people that have uh, uh, have read it um, afterwards, you know, they would go back and they would have a look to see if they could find, you know, where it was at that particular point. But now there's this kind of huge bunch of people out there who kind of talk to each other to say, where do you think he was when he wrote this? It's really quite <laughs> fun, actually. Well, if you're trying to sell your book to someone, and I mean, maybe this isn't your style, but let's say it is for a moment, you're trying to sell your book to someone, how do you sell it? Because you, you can't stand beside all the other authors of adventure motorcycle books, or, or for the most part, and say, yes, this is an adventure motorcycle book, and thrust it into their hand and, and send them off. You've, you've got to give some explanation. I, I reverse it. I ask the question. I say, are you a motorcyclist? To which they say yes or no, and if it's no, I just move on. Um, <laughs> if they are a motorcyclist, I say, do you travel or, or have you ever wanted to travel? And um, and then, uh, depending on their response, and then I say, do you enjoy laughter? And then that's about it. 
actually. So I don't really try too hard to sell it. So I'm probably not the best salesman of my book in the world, but still, that's kind of how it is. You know, if if you if you ride a motorcycle, if you if you love to travel and you like to laugh, then this is uh, this is a book for you. If you want to know about um, engineering and you know, kind of crises that can't be handled and stuff like that, then it, it probably isn't really. Although there were crises which were difficult to handle. I just think I put a kind of a light touch to them, shall we say. Why do you think you have to be a motorcyclist to like your book or to at least get it? Um, I think it's it's the kind of motorcycle and sense of zen. You know, when, uh, when you're uh, riding particularly alone, and I, I don't ride with groups and people and stuff like that. But when you're riding alone and, you know, you have the road in front of you, the sun's at a certain angle, the curve is just right, maybe you're listening to music or something like that, and you really get into that state of zen. And I think if if you can achieve that state of zen, and, you know, as a motorcyclist, you, you know what that's about, then you can also see where my writing is coming from because it's, it's uh, it's always kind of from the left field. It's never, um, if you like, a direct description of, of what's in front of me. There's all, always something kind of going on with it. As a motorcyclist, you'll understand that. If you're, a, um, I think, a kind of an ordinary tourist or, a, a, you know, no one's an ordinary tourist, but if you're generally touring, I don't think you quite get the, uh, the fine concentration that, uh, uh, that's needed. As, as, a, as a rider, and I think some of that fine concentration, I hope, I've distilled into, uh, into this book. It's a book that seems to, at least in, in my view, and I'm not a professional book reviewer, um, but it seems to be a book that, as you read through it, it, it's not necessarily easy to, to read through this. You have to pay attention, and bit by bit, you, being the author, sort of supplies us with a, a stroke of paint here and a stroke of paint there, and, and, and none of them necessarily go side by side. As you start to get a real uh, a picture that sort of fills itself in as you go, but you never, ever get the full picture, and it's almost like your mind is, um, is working all the time to try and put this picture together that you're describing. Is that fair? It, it, it is actually, Jim. It's very fair. You know, um, when you read a book and then you see the film, mm-hmm. now, the film is never as good as the book, no. never, ever. So what I try to do is, uh, is to keep up a, um, a speed of narrative because that's what motorcycles do. You know, they, 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 uh, they make movement, they, uh, they continue to move. And then what I try to do is, as you say, give a... Um, a brief description here and a brief description there, so that you, so that the reader can can fill in the rest for themselves. And it's, and and it's it's their own, if you like, burst of imagination that pulls the whole thing together. That's I think, that's why it's uh, it. I've been told it's very enjoyable to read. So what comes next? You're you're going to do volume three. Ah, uh, who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I'm just writing an article at the moment about the tango club of Chateaulin, which is in Brittany in, in France. And I, I found the tango club because I went to Brittany on my motorcycle. And I was so fascinated by the way people dance and how passionate they are about tango and things. And I thought, well, okay, this deserves an article and I'm going to learn tango. It may not be motorcycling as most people know, but it was a motorcycle journey that took me there. So maybe that's kind of how it works for me. I go on a journey, things happen, write it down, 
and off to the next uh, situation or the next predicament, which is what's usually my case. When you travel, are you traveling to write? Is that the purpose of the trip? It's to meet people and then to uh, um, share those moments with a wider audience, if you like, and in my case, through, uh, through writing. Well, you've done quite a few trips. You've obviously been writing a, a very long time. What have you learned? Ah, uh, I hope above all else, humility. I think because uh, the people that I've met on the road, um, the generosity of the people that I meet on the road is just outstanding, always. Um, I've learned that uh, uh, some things are tough, but everything passes. If you can get through the next uh, second or two seconds or minute or five minutes, it will be okay. Uh, I think I think those are the kind of main things I've uh, I've learned. So it's to retain uh, uh, humility and to uh, realize that you actually um, that whatever pain you're suffering will pass. So I think I think that's it. How old are you? Or, or uh, do you not want to say? No, no, I'm 70. So has it taken the 70 years to learn this? Oh, I think so. I think so. I've been uh, in a 12-step program for um, almost 30 years now. And uh, I think I've finally got it in the last, <laughs> in about the last uh, 10 years, alongside motorcycles then. Put those things together and it's, you know, wow. I'm just having such a great life, I promise. I really, really am. What do you know at 70 that you didn't know at 50? Um, at 50, you're still quite young and stupid. You know, I think really um, it, it takes that extra couple of decades to, to, get, to start getting some wisdom. So in other words, you know, you can see the plug is there. Um, at 50, you're still going to put your finger in to see if it was really painful. At 70, you're going to get someone else to put their finger in because, you know, it's really painful. <laughs> well, the book is available where? Is it, is it in, uh, distributed uh, in all book sales places? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it, it's on the internet via me at DerekMansfield.com. Oh, there you go. So order it directly from you and then get this wonderful package that I received with the, the string and the wax. And, and uh, I, I'd be surprised if most people don't photograph it when they open it up. <laughs> well, it's, it's a nice experience for me to, uh, to send, I have to say. Well, Derek, great to meet you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much too, Jim. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. And that was Derek Mansfield. And you can get his book. And by the sounds of it, it's going to arrive the same way for you as it did for us, all fancied up. I mean, I almost think that's worth the price of the book. Visit his website, buy directly from him, www.derekmansfield.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. (music) 
Corey Hansen decided to sell everything and do a long motorcycle trip, which he did, and he had a great time. But while he was on the trip, one thing that kept nagging at him was the fact that his bike didn't hold enough fuel, and he was always messing around, strapping tanks on, and having to fill these auxiliary tanks up and then wait till the, the gas tank drained down or he burnt enough fuel out of it that he could pour that extra gas into the tank. Just found it a real pain. So when he got back, he searched around for an auxiliary gas tank or a replacement gas tank. None could be found. So to make a long story short, he decided to start a company making tanks. So he started Camel Tank. And fast forward to today, he now has auxiliary tanks for the BMW F700, the F800, the R1200GS, the KTM 1190, the Honda CRF250L, the Yamaha WR250R, and soon for the new Africa Twin. This is really cool because not only is this an auxiliary tank, so you don't have to replace your tank, you leave your tank in place. This auxiliary tank fits into a space that isn't used on the bike, just an empty space. There's no switches, valves, nothing you got to mess with. You either use it or you don't. So it sits there. If you need the extra capacity, you just undo the lid and fill it up just like you would your gas tank and close it up. And then it automatically is used. It's automatically drained from that tank into your main tank. There's no pumps, no nothing. W camel-adv.com and you'll see the photographs there of the different bikes with the, the tanks on it really something to see www.camel-adv.com and of course when you're talking to him let him know you heard him here on adventure rider radio The chain drive system on your motorcycle is subject to incredible abuse. Not only is it spinning around mile after mile, day after day, week after week, it's subject to all the jerking and jarring that goes on every time you twist the throttle on or off. Not to mention when you dump the clutch to spin the rear wheel or pop a wheelie. And it doesn't stop there for most riders. No, we take it a step further by riding in the rain and getting the road grid on it. And then we go to dirt and mud and water It's just incredible how much abuse these beautifully crafted mechanisms take. And we give little thought to them because they're so reliable. I mean, really, the modern chain is a marvel of technology. They're finely crafted with hundreds of moving parts. They've got seals and grease. And the metallurgy work that goes into building the chain to make it so that it's strong enough, but not overbuilt, where it has some flexibility, but it's not too weak. It's just amazing. And the chains manage to take all the abuse while efficiently transferring the power from the engine to the rear wheel. And they do it for a long time before they die, or at least it should. Now, there isn't one choice when you're going to shop for a chain. Now, if you've looked at all, and you probably have, there are loads of different chains to choose from. Not only manufacturer to manufacturer, but X-ring, O-ring. I mean, the list goes on. It really can get your head spinning when you look at it. So we're going to try and sort that out today. We're going to talk with a couple of reps, one from DID Racing Chain and the other one from Regina Chain, both top names in the business. We're going to talk about O-ring and X-rings and even some of the differences between the two companies. So to kick it off, we're going to start with Regina Chain. Regina Chain is an Italian company that produces motorcycle chains as well as industrial chain. As a matter of fact, I think all of the companies that produce motorcycle chain also produce industrial chain, which is, I guess, kind of obvious if you think about it. But it does show that the their experience is quite broad in chain manufacturing. So for Regina Chain, we connected with... My name is Mike Hager. I work for Regina Chain Company. We're, are, we're located in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Mike, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. 
Thank you, Jim. Okay, to start things off, why don't you tell us about Regina Chain? Well, it's an Italian chain company that started out in 1919 making bicycle chain in Italy. From bicycle chain, they moved into motorcycle chain and then eventually into industrial chains. So do you supply chains to OEM stuff? We supply a lot of OEMs. Most of the major OEMs that are not Japanese are using Regina Chain. Well, let's look at the the numbers first. When we're looking at a motorcycle chain, you know, we're looking at a 525 chain, and it says 116 afterwards. What do all these numbers mean? Well, the, the 525 designation, the, the first number is the chain pitch in eighths of an inch, so it would be five-eighths of an inch pitch. The second two numbers are the inside width of the chain in eighths of an inch, so... Two and a half, 2.5 would be five sixteenths inside width. So when you say pitch, can you just explain that again? So that first, that five number, for instance, in a 525 chain, what is that pitch again? The pitch would be from the center line of a pin to the center line of the next pin. Why do they call that pitch when it's just a measurement? It's a, it's a technical term that's used in engineering for the pitch of anything that is located on centers. Okay. And the, so then the last part is the width. So in other words, if you had a bigger sprocket, you're going to have a bigger number there. Right. For instance, the 530 chain, would the 3.0 would be three-eighths of an inch. So it would be three-eighths of an inch wide, the inside of the chain or the outside of the sprocket tooth. Okay. And, and are there any other numbers that we need to worry about? Well, the 116 that you mentioned would be the number of pitches in the chain or number of links in the chain. And I want to point out one thing that's important in counting the number of links, because it's a very common thing for people to look at the outer plate in a chain and only count those, and you'll come up with half the number of links that way, because there's actually an inner plate and an outer plate on a chain. So what's the best way to count it if you're if you're counting... Count the pins. Count the pins. So in other words, if it says 116, you should have 116 pins. Exactly. Okay. Because not all chains come cut to length. When you order a chain, Correct. quite often you'll have to shorten it up. It's kind of tough to put an old chain and new chain together, isn't it, to measure them up? Right. And the other thing is sometimes people change the sprocket tooth count, and it might lead you to a different chain than came on the bike originally. So what's the method then for putting it on and figuring out the length you'll actually need? Well, the best thing to do is take the old chain and count pin by pin, including the connecting link pins, and you'll get the exact length of the chain. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what types of chains are available? We see all different ones. If you're going to buy a chain and you don't know anything about chains, you'll see you're all of a sudden bombarded with all these different types and numbers of chains, and, and it sort of leaves you scratching your head, everything from you know a basic or standard chain right on up to racing chains. What sort of, a, in, in just rough sense, what do we have in there as far as the range goes? Well, it, it depends on the bike that you're putting the chain on. Some of the, the older bikes take a more basic chain because they don't have very much room for the chain width-wise. So it would typically be a, a more standard or not as not as strong as the newer chains. And then they have thinner side plates so it keeps the overall width down. And the older bikes don't require a stronger chain because the horsepower is low. You also have 
non-sealed chains and sealed chains. And the non-sealed, of course, would be narrower, but you can still have chains with thicker side plates to give you uh, bigger fatigue strength and bigger tensile strength. But then you get into the sealed chains, and you can have thin O-ring chains, thicker O-ring chains. You can have X-rings, W-rings, Z-rings, etc. Okay, so that that makes one's head start to spin instantly there as soon as you get into the, the different rings. But but let's just look at the sealed and unsealed then. For adventure bikes, nobody's going to run an unsealed chain then, are they? Correct, because you want to get the mileage out of it. Right. And and so you've got to get some sort of sealing. So before we jump into talking about the seals, why do we have a sealed chain? What exactly is it doing for us? Well, the unsealed chain typically would be used in either a very low horsepower bike or a motocross type application where the event that you're going to run is very short. You can lube it with oil and run it for 45 minutes and you're fine. But to run for you know a whole day, you need something with a seal to keep that grease in between the pin and the bushing, which is your critical area for wear. Okay, and is there any advantage to running the unsealed chain? Just a little bit less resistance, but it's that's a bit of a misnomer. People tend to put the bike on a stand, they spin the wheel when it's cold, the chain is cold, that is, and it doesn't spin very many times. But when the bike starts running with you're actually transmitting horsepower it heats up the chain and then the seals get softer and the resistance goes down dramatically now when we're talking about resistance here this is so minor i wouldn't think that anyone's going to actually feel it would they i've heard people say they could but we've actually done testing in the lab and it's less than a quarter horsepower draw Right. So, I mean, especially for adventure motorcyclists, boy, you, I mean, you turn on your signal and that's almost going to draw as much as you're going to lose there. <laughs> you're right. That's good. So, okay. So we, we don't have to worry too much about that. Obviously we're going to run with sealed chains. We're going to get much more life out of it. Let's talk about the design of the chain, how it's made up. Why do we need seals and what's inside? Well, like I said, chains are very simple. You have five parts. You have an inner plate, an outer plate, pin, bushing, and roller, not counting the seals. And the pin runs inside the bushing. That's where, when it goes around the sprocket, that's where the chain is articulating and creating that wear. Because it doesn't really wear when it's just pulling straight force. But when it goes around the sprocket, it's actually kind of scraping and turning, and that's where you get the wear. And that seal keeps the grease in, and it keeps the dirt out. So the grease that's inside, it's a really high quality grease, isn't it? I mean, anyone who's done their own chain can feel it. It's like the stuff that does, does not want to come off your hands. It's sort of thick and heavy. It seems like it's a very high quality. Yes, it is. It's very expensive grease, and it's the key to the life of that chain. Because it's, it's capable of operating at very high temperatures, and it's very adhesive, and it's able to stay in that joint when that chain's working hard and generating heat. So it's one of the things to keep in mind when we're replacing chains to be extremely careful that we get a lot of grease in that connector link. Exactly. That's a very good point. I've had people that actually have cleaned the thing off because they saw all the grease on it. They cleaned it. And within just a few hundred miles, that link will actually usually end up breaking because it wears so fast. 
And you've sealed out your, your chance to oil it, haven't you? If, you, if, if that's what exactly. you're attempting to do, you've sealed it all up. You can't get anything inside. Excellent point. That's right. So the seals that are there, they're also lubricated with the same grease. They're keeping the, the grease inside, the dirt from entering it. Is that why we're oiling the outside of the chain to lubricate those seals? That's part of it, yes. And you're also lubricating between the outside of the bushing and the roller, the inside of the roller, and between the roller and the sprocket. Okay, so that that roller, that's not sealed in with the, with the O-ring? Correct. It's running on the outside of the bushing, so it doesn't get any protection at all from, the, from that seal that's just running on the outside of the bushing, but it doesn't go near the roller because there's an inner plate between them. So that means, like, you cannot get by without oiling it. The reason I say that is because I, I've actually heard people say that they don't believe in oiling it at all. They, it's a sealed chain. They just leave it as that. I've seen that done with OEMs in testing just to see what happens because they figure some people won't lubricate. But typically you get a lot of roller wear in that situation, and eventually you start having the rollers break and come off, and then you get a real erratic action on the sprocket. And it just eventually, it just starts spitting rollers off like crazy. And with the cost of a chain and your sprockets, you want to get the maximum out of it. That's right. But the lubrication is key to that. So as far as those pins, I see a lot of talk on the different sites, the manufacturers of chains like yourself, who talk about carbon. What does carbon have to do with the strength of the chain? Well, carbon is used to increase the hardness of steel when you're hardening it. You increase the carbon content to be able to reach a higher hardness value. Okay, so that is key then in the strength of the steel. Yes. Okay, makes sense. Now I'd like to get into seal types. Most people don't really understand the difference between O-ring and X-chain. They say, I don't know. Often someone will say, well, I'll go with the more expensive one because it's better. But I'd like to find out why it's better. So what makes an, well, first of all, what's available for seals and what makes them different? Well, the O-ring really has one central point of contact. And it's also a you know pretty thick cross section. So when you squeeze it together, it creates a lot of pressure in the joint. And that pressure when it starts to get a little bit of grit in there from the contamination from the environment, it tends to increase the wear rate of that seal. And the life of the seal is the life of the chain. Once you lose one, the chain is gone. So the X-rings were developed to create a lower pressure joint, and it also has the added benefit of trapping a little bit of grease inside that cross-section of the seal. So that if you don't lube it quite as often as you should, it still has a little bit of lube to keep the seal from becoming overstressed and breaking. And we did a lot of testing uh, in our lab to develop a seal. We started with X-rings, and then we started trying to morph into something that was better. And after 44 different versions of this seal, we came up with what we call the Z44 seal. So it's a little bit different shape than an X. It's like a leaning Z. So instead of completely just compressing it, you're more or less just twisting it when you assemble the chain. So it doesn't have as much pressure in the joint, gives it longer life. When we're talking about seals, like the difference between the O-ring and the X-ring or the Z-ring, the Z-44, are they all, is it all Z-44s? I thought you had some other ones on here as well. No, we discontinued our O-rings actually for this year. Oh, wow. 
So, you, that, so it's standard Z-ring for you guys? Yes. Okay, so when we're thinking of seals, I guess the, one of the ways I'm thinking here to illustrate the point with this is if you think of a, a seal and an engine, anything that goes around a shaft or anything, they have a very fine lip. And that's because of what you're saying is friction, right? Friction builds up heat and heat destroys things. So I guess the finer the edge that you can get on that seal, the more effective and the, the longer life you'll get from the seal then. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So the Z-ring, it's got two seals, and as you were saying, it traps the grease in between, so it's got the added benefit of, of holding the, the lubricant right close to the seal edges, and it's, it's less drag on the whole chain itself. Yes, that's correct. So the chain drag, we're not just worried about horsepower, and we sort of joked about that, about the, it's not very much horsepower, and that makes sense, but it certainly makes a difference as far as friction and heat goes. Right, and when you look, you look at the size of those seals, they're very, very small, so... Everything you can do to protect that from too much pressure and friction is going to help it live longer. Now, does this make it more expensive to, to manufacture, having this Z-ring? A little bit, but not, not a lot. Uh, and, and obviously, you guys have dropped the O-ring because the Z-ring is just so much more reliable. Yes, now we're looking at master links. Often you'll see a clip style master link and then you'll see rivet master links. What's the difference between the two? Are there applications where one is appropriate and one is not? Let's talk about that. Well, we offer four different types of connecting links. The one that's the most strong is the one that's the, the rivet link with a solid pin, which is like the rest of the chain. That's what we prefer because it's the strongest. It's it's the same strength as a chain. When you start going down, there's also a rivet link that has hollow ends, which is more Japanese style, but we offer it also because certain tools will only rivet that type of a solid pin. And it, it's more like a flaring operation, like flaring a piece of plumbing tubing. And then we offer two different types of spring clip links. One is the typical spring clip for off-road where it has a completely slip fit outer plate. And then the second one has a semi-press fit section with a little shoulder so that it's a tighter fit with the plate, which improves the strength pretty dramatically compared to a slip fit. The slip fit is really only suitable for off-road like motocross. But for smaller bikes, you can still use the clip type, what we call a type 44, but it's got that light press fit that you can really just squeeze with pliers. Okay, before we talk much about those clips, I want to go back to what you said about the hollow pins so you can do it with a certain tool. Do you mean to say that somebody's going to go with a weaker pin because they have a weaker tool? It's, it's a very common tool, though. It's, that's something that's it's been around for quite a while, and a lot of people have them. Okay, and is that for speed? Are we talking about for racing stuff, or are we talking about for street chains like adventure riders would use? Well, it could be for street chains like adventure riders would use, but typically the tool the tool isn't as robust. To rivet a solid pin like we typically use, it requires a more robust tool. I've gotten chains back where people have had trouble with the chain, and they, they've tried to rivet the solid pin with one of these other tools for the hollow-ended pin, and you just see a little dimple in the end of the pin. It really did not rivet it. Right. And the, and the difference between these tools is fairly obvious, right? I mean, the, the I think I have both of them <laughs> in my toolbox. I never use the weaker one. The weaker one just, it looks more like it's set up for bicycle stuff, really, right. than the other one, which is a, 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 um, a unit that's, a, that's sort of a full bridge. Right. That's right. 
Okay, so that makes sense. But for as adventure riders, we want that strongest pin. We want to go out and spend the extra money, get the proper tool or borrow it or something and put on the solid pin. Right. And if you don't want to carry the type of tool to rivet a solid pin with you in case you have a problem, it's okay to, to use the semi-press fit link as a backup. Mm, that's a good point. So if you're going to carry one, that, that would be handy. So what is the semi-press one? How do you put that on? You can simply use a pair of pliers and squeeze that plate on because there's a shoulder to stop it. It's a light press fit. It's nowhere near the amount of press fit that's in the normal rivet link, but you still you eliminate that movement and vibration that you get with a completely slip fit outer plate. So you're basically putting it on with a pair of pliers. Right. It's, you got to squeeze hard, though. It's not easy. Right. But it's, that would be a perfect one to carry, like you said, as a backup um, in your bag so that if you do have a problem, you can put your chain back together. That's right. Because what, what's, what's one of the instances where a chain would end up breaking or where we would have a problem like that? Rocks, getting up in between little, little rocks, getting in between, or even running on a rock with the chain on the sprocket, you can cause the chain to break. What are some uh, best practices for lubing and cleaning the chain? I mean, you want to make sure you do it regularly. That's something that sometimes people don't do. I mean, when you start with a brand new chain, we recommend adjusting it after just 100 kilometers and then every 400 kilometers after that. And with off-road bikes, if you're riding completely off-road, we recommend adjusting it every time because typically you're using a non-sealed chain. But lubricating-wise, you want to, Simple thing, you want to remember to lube warm and adjust it cold. If you lube it when the chain's warm, like right after you've been riding it, it allows that lubricant to penetrate the chain much better because it, it uh, kind of decreases the viscosity of the lube. Cleaning is also important. If you've got a lot of road grime and dirt and whatever on the chain, it's good to clean it before you lube it. And you can you got to be careful what you clean it with if you've got a sealed chain. But something like kerosene is good, but you want to be careful of other types of solvents. And, and you're not talking soak it when you're saying clean it. You're saying spray it on or brush it on or something. And I mean, you, you can soak it. Some people soak it. Some people even use uh, some sort of soak solution. But if you use a soak solution with water, you got to make sure that you blow it off and re-lubricate it immediately. Otherwise, you're going to get some corrosion right away. Right. How long do you think the seals last on average before they're worn out and we're getting dirt and grime in there? It, it depends on how well you take care of the chain. But, I mean, you can easily get twenty to 30,000 kilometers. In fact, even more. I've known people to get 25,000 miles with the Z-ring chain. Hmm. Do you guys recommend using any sort of automated oiling system? We haven't recommended that because if you lube it regularly you don't really need to do that when we're talking about lube the only other thing i want to ask you about that was types of lube i mean there's everything under the sun out there from you know your oil to your waxy stuff as far as adventure riding goes i mean a lot street with some dirt what would be best for that setup i mean we've done a lot of testing on lubricants and plain old sae 80 90 weight mineral oil works great for chain lube Wow, are you serious? Just regular oil? Yeah, it does. Hmm. And it's also readily available. But the other thing I think about is if you buy a, 
a motorcycle chain lube, make sure you buy one that's for a sealed chain. They'll say O-ring safe because you don't want one that has a solvent in it that can attack the seal. Oh, I see. So the ones that are for non-O-ring chains, they're sort of like get a bit of penetrating oil style stuff in it? Right. And I've heard of people using all kinds of things, even WD-40, which WD-40 is really not meant to be a lubricant. Right. So you should not use WD-40 on the chain. Correct. Nothing against WD-40 as a product, but it's not made to be a chain loop. No, it's great stuff for, for what it's meant for, for sure. What about the chain as far as wear goes? How do we know when the chain is worn out? Well, you can measure it. It's, uh, if you look in our catalog that's available for download online, we have a little little chart there showing how you can put your chain, take your chain out, put it on a table, and basically put a 20-kilogram load on it so you've got some tension on it. And then you can measure it with calipers. We even, even list the number of links that you want to uh, measure across and give a dimension. But basically, for non-overing chains, you want to, it's, it's worn out when it's elongated 2% of the total length. And the O-ring chain is worn out at 1%. Well, what about for the average rider who's probably not going to take it off and measure it? What would be the indications if we're looking at our bike? Uh, when you grab the chain when it's on the big sprocket, you can pull it away from the sprocket about 16th of an inch, which is what, a millimeter and a half. That's pretty much worn out. You can also tell by the wear on the sprockets typically, too, especially the front sprocket. If you're seeing a lot of sprocket, there's probably chain's probably worn out too. And I'm glad you brought the sprocket up because um, most people will, will say you've got to replace both sprockets when you replace a chain. Is that the case? Um, some other people will argue that you can get two chains um, out of the set of sprockets. I mean, obviously everything's subjective. If you abuse it, it's going to wear faster. But let's just talk in, in normal wear. Is it a standard rule of thumb, new chain, new sprockets? Yes, it is. I mean, there is the possibility depending on the design of your sprocket if you have the ability to flip the sprocket over to reverse it then you can kind of use the other side of the tooth but there's not a lot of bikes where you can do that especially on the front sprocket if chain's going to wear to fit the sprocket if you've got a worn sprocket you're going to wear the chain very quickly because it's not going to match the pitch because the old chain is stretched out, right? And and it's actually become, right. uh, I guess, a, a longer pitch, hasn't it? That's right. It gets longer. And as the chain gets longer, it rides up the face of the sprocket tooth. So it, it seeks a larger pitch diameter to fit that pitch of the chain. And if you've got that sprocket worn in that long, elongated position, that chain's not going to be hitting on every tooth, sort of, so to speak. So it doesn't share the load properly. So it overloads the chain right on the first sprocket tooth, and then it starts to wear quicker, so it fits in. Sometimes when we're riding long distances, as far as adventure riding goes, you find times where you end up putting too many miles on your chain and sprockets, and the, and the chain's hanging down, and you've got no more adjustment left. Are there real dangers of the chain breaking when it gets to that point? Oh, there is a big chance of it breaking, because it can start whipping more when it's loose like that and the accelerations involved when that chain's whipping it's, it's like cracking a whip mm. so it can really snap it plus the other danger you have when the chain's very loose like that you can start skipping over the teeth on the sprocket or ratcheting if you will and that puts a tremendous load on the chain too right 
When you're picking the chains for any of these things, and I guess we should have talked about this at the start, when you're picking them, you can either, I guess, look at the specs that you you get uh, with your bike or you can find on your bike, but you can also go to the website as well, the chain manufacturer, in this case, Regina Chain, and uh, you can search right there and, and put in your bike and find out what chain you require on the website. Is that correct? Right. We have a fitment list in our catalog that's available online, and it's uh, typically we'll... we'll give you a best chain. And then if you want something more economical, we'll give you that option too. And Mike, if somebody's buying a chain, do they buy it directly from you guys? No, we sell through distributors who sell to dealers. Okay. So you just go to the dealer, you tell them you want Regina chain and they should have it there. That's right. Well, that is a lot of great info. It was good to talk to you, Mike. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And I've been speaking with Mike Hager from Regina Chain, and you can find out more about what they do by visiting their website, www.reginachain.net. Stick around. We're going to be back in just a minute with Robert Palmer. No, not that Robert Palmer. Robert Palmer from DID Chains. You know, if you've ever considered uh, trying one of those one-piece riding suits that Aerostitch makes, now's the time for you to give it a go because you can try any one-piece R3 or Roadcrafter suit for a month. And if you're not riding more than you did before you received it, you can send it back. You get a full refund, no questions asked. And go to their website to see the details, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, you always want to use a forward slash ARR because it's going to let them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio, first of all. But it's going to get you a 10% off discount on your first purchase, which that's considerable if you're buying a suit or if you're a repeat customer, you get free shipping. They also have a catalog that is incredible. I love the paper version, but you can also download it off their website. Drop by their website and look at that. And it's Aerostitch quality. I can tell you from experience, I ride with Aerostitch gear now and I absolutely love it. I've done the rain and the wind and the sun, all that stuff with it. It's fantastic www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, DID Racing Chain is probably a name that you recognize from your local motorcycle shop or parts outfitter. And today we're going to speak with Robert Palmer, who's been with DID Racing Chain for about 25 years. Okay, hi. My name is Robert Palmer. Um, I'm here in Long Beach, California, and I've been working with uh, DID since the fall of 1990. Um, I do everything from doing the website to uh, tech support from time to time. Uh, you know, I do the trade shows. Uh, uh, you know, I'm the point person for... Um, you know, a lot of magazines to contact if they're doing the story on on chain or rims. Um, and I love motorcycles. What did you start riding? I started riding when I was 13 years old, and I'm 68 now, so I, I've been riding for a long time. <laughs> That's certainly a lot of years. So I guess one of the first things that we want to look at when it comes to motorcycle chains is the numbers. I mean, we look at a chain and we see, you know, it's a 520 or a 525 and and it'll say 116 or 120 or something afterwards. What exactly do the numbers mean? Well, it's the pitch. It's the, uh, it's basically the, uh, the distance between the, 
the pins on a particular link. And it relates to the sprockets, and it, and it all relates to uh, the particular motorcycle it's on and the, uh, the strength that the chain needs to be for that particular motorcycle. So basically, as you go up in motorcycle size, you'll start at a, a smaller size. And as you go up in motorcycle size, we're talking CC here, the chain size gets bigger to handle the power. Correct. So what types of chains are available? Are, are there different strengths? Like, you know, so in other words, if we're looking at a, a 525 chain that's 120 links, are there different types of chains that I can get with those same specs? Yes, there's there's a multitude of uh, different chains you can get for a particular size chain. Give me some examples. Okay, well, there's there's a standard chain, and a standard chain is um, you know a non O-ring chain. It's uh, uh, you know, and it can be bi-stake riveted. It could be quad-stake riveted. Um, you know, and it, and the difference is, I mean the the diameter of the pins can change. The thickness of the side plates can change, and it's all dependent on the particular power and the need of uh, the motorcycle that it's going on. Typically, like a standard chain would be for a lot of the vintage motorcycles that really didn't have that much horsepower. So when you say standard chain, what makes it a standard chain? Why does it categorize as standard? Well, that's what they're just calling it. It's you could you replace the name standard with basic. You know, uh, it's the basic chain, and and that varies too from manufacturer to manufacturer. I mean, some basic chains or standard chains from one manufacturer can be totally different from another manufacturer. So when you're talking a basic or standard chain compared to, let's say, a high-end chain, what kind of differences would you see between the two? Okay, um, a high-end chain, uh, for, for one thing, you know, I know we're going to get into seals um, a little bit later, but, uh, you know, the basic chain or standard chain is um, non-O-ring, non-X-ring. Uh, it, it doesn't have any seals. In other words... Uh, there's nothing in the chain to keep lubrication inside of the chain, so you constantly have to lube it. Um, and as you move up the ladder, uh, you start getting, it was like in the mid-80s, I think it was, that O-ring chains first came into being. And the, the thing with the O-ring chains is there was grease put inside the chain on the, the pins and the bearings and the bushings. And the O-rings kept that inside, and um, that's what increased the life of the chain. Um, and then from that, we moved on to different types of seals. Well, so the, the basic chain, then, that's not something that anyone's going to run on the street nowadays, is it? It would sort of be unsuitable. No, no. People use the standard chain all the time. It, for one thing, it's cheaper. Um, you know, and somebody looking for an inexpensive chain, uh, they're not doing, you know, they're not doing high mileage stuff. Um, you know, it could be on a dirt bike, could be on a, a street bike. And like I said before, it could be on a vintage bike, um, that, you know, was, um, that came to being before O-ring chains were invented. 
So is it how like would it be a lot less wear that you would get out of the chain, like a basic chain? So comparing a basic chain to an O-ring chain uh, or any sort of sealed chain, is there a huge difference there in longevity? Gigantic, yes, yeah, yeah. It's, that's the whole thing of it, you know. It, um, you know, I, I typically, I mean, I can say, you know, depending on the chain, it, it varies how how the difference is or how long the difference is. But I would say I can I could comfortably say a, a, a sealed chain will last four to to four to five times longer than a non-sealed chain. Wow, so it's sort of, it could be a false economy then. You need to buy a, a basic chain to save some money, but really you could end up replacing it you know, far sooner than what you would with a sealed chain. Yes, you can. And, um, but, you know, having said that, um, you know, a sealed chain is usually wider because it, it, you, you need to put the O-rings in there, so that makes the chain wider. And some of the vintage bikes, uh, you know, they were designed for a non-opening chain, because that's all that existed back then. So, um, you know, especially at the counter shaft sprocket, you know, and they didn't have enough chain or the, enough room between um, the counter shaft sprocket and the uh, chain cover. So, you know, you couldn't put a, a sealed chain in it. So then on a new bike that's designed for um, a sealed chain, can you still fit a basic chain on a sprocket like that? Sure. You can, you can always go the other direction. You, you know, you can't go, uh, you can't put a wider chain on a bike that was designed for a non-O-ring chain, but, uh, a, a bike that was designed for a sealed chain. Yes, you can put a non-O-ring chain in and, and, and it all depends on the application. For example, I mean, like drag racing motorcycles, uh, a lot of them, they don't want a sealed chain. Um, they're only going a quarter mile, so they don't want the the added drag that the um, the O-rings or X-rings cause. So, um, so what they'll end up doing is put a, a, a bigger, heavy-duty non-O-ring chain on it. A while ago, we did an interview with uh, Scott Euler, and uh, we talked about oiling systems, and we, we did an episode on it. And what they were te- what they were saying is that in their experiments, they found that O-rings and X-rings only lasted about, I think he said, a thousand miles is is where they found them breaking down, and they and they're sort of lost their usefulness. Do, do you find that? No, no, not at all. Um, you know, we we typically you know get customers that come into us at the trade shows and talk to us and tell us they've got 20,000, 30,000 miles off of one of our chains. So, um, yeah, they're, they're lasting a lot, a lot longer than, um, uh, you know, the, the early days of O-ring. Okay, so when we're talking a basic, because I just brought up the oiler, I have a question about the basic chain. If you're running, a, if you decide to run a basic chain because it's less expensive, we know understand it's going to wear out sooner, and we added an oiler to it, any kind of oiler that was going to give it a, a regular oil treatment while you go, would that extend its life to to a sort of a, a normal sealed chain? Well, I you know I don't have you know any personal experience with the oiler. Uh, the only thing that I can remember is um, I used to have, I think it was an Allstate 175 when, you know, one of the early bikes that I had 
and it, it actually had a complete or the the chain was completely enclosed and um and you know you could you could put oil on it and um it would it would extend the life of the chain um uh the the only the only thing with the oiler is you know it's going to be messy you know uh you know that was the other in fact i think they um <laughs> I, I could be wrong, but if I'm not mistaken, that completely enclosed chain had a, actually a little drip kind of thing going on it with oil. So uh, it was kind of like the the oiler way back when, and uh, it extended the life of the chain, but it was completely enclosed, so the mess of the oil was contained. Um, you know, in today's bikes with the the chain exposed and you have an oiler on it, you're going to get oil all over the place. Now, and, and again, and I don't mean to keep going back to this basic chain thing, but I'm very curious about it. So the, does the basic chain, as far as the insides of the chain, have the same sort of bushings, et cetera? Would it, is it the same quality of build as what a sealed chain would be? Well, yeah. I mean, you've got the side plates, you've got the pins, You've got bushings, and then you've got the rollers on top of that. Um, and uh, uh, that's the that's the basic structure of the chain. So, uh, but it varies because uh, the pin diameter can be different, the pin length can be different, the side plate length can be different. You can have split bushings, you can have solid bushings, um, you can have quad stake riveted uh, pins, which are uh, you know, riveted over on four sides of the pinhead, and then you can have bi-stake um, uh, riveted pins, which are just riveted over on two sides of the pinhead. Okay, so why would we be looking at different... What What does the rivet matter for the chain? Well, the rivet matters because, you know, the the more secure that that pin is riveted... Uh, the less chance of uh, the chain coming apart. You know, you, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, you know, damaged chain where you had um, a side plate that actually pulled off from uh, the the other uh, the rest of the chain, but it happens from time to time. And does that usually happen from the from the master link that someone installs, or is that a possibility that it happens from having a chain that isn't suitable to the horsepower? I mean, I guess that's an obvious one. Yeah, I mean, it, it can it can be um, off the connecting link. I mean, uh, that's usually the weakest part of the chain, but it can also happen in any of the other links of the chain too. You know, and, and there's different factors that can cause it. Um, you know, probably one of the uh, biggest factors of having the chain come apart like that would be, you know, uh, some road debris uh, getting up and stuck in between the sprocket and the uh, the chain, um, and that will, um, you know, the, the, that causes extreme forces on the chain, and something's got to give. Hmm. So as we move up from the basic chain to the more expensive chains, do they last longer on the bike, or are they just stronger, or both? Both. Yeah. I mean, it would be both. I mean, uh, you know, and uh, the, the cost of the chain comes into play there. Um, with DID, a lot of, I mean, uh, well, most of the DID chains are a performance chain. It's a, it's a fine uh, line between 
weight and strength. You want a chain that, um, you know, especially for performance, high performance, uh, you don't want to put a, a heavier chain on the bike than you, you need. Um, you know, that's, that increases the rotating mass, which, you know, robs horsepower. So, uh, you know, it, there's so many different size engines, so many different size motorcycles. Um, that's why there's so many different chains available. Talk about the O-ring or the X-ring, the ceiling ring itself. Okay. Well, most people know what an O-ring is. You know, I mean, we've seen O-rings on some, you know, uh, coffee cups and things that seal the top of it so the liquid doesn't come out. Well, an O-ring does the same thing with uh, a chain. You know, like I mentioned before, the uh, greases uh, put inside the chain between the pins, the bushings, the bearings, and the O-ring holds that grease inside. And it also helps keep the dirt outside. Uh, You get dirt or you get sand or, you know, something inside the chain, and it's going to uh, increase the wear of the chain quite a bit. That's why the seals are there. And an X-ring, the original design of the X-ring, it took a couple of different stages. It was originally designed for road racing. And it's like for the Daytona 200, for example, you know, that's a pretty long race. So you need a chain that's going to hold up for, you know, the whole 200 distance. So uh, the bottom line on it is the O-rings cause friction. The O-rings are in there and it's squished in between the two side plates. And that pressure robs horsepower. And so... The DID engineers many, many years ago, before 1990, because when I first started with them, uh, uh, you know, they had a, a type of X-ring that they were using on some of the chains. So I don't know the exact year that they first, quote, quote invented it, but, um, uh, you know, it was quite some time ago. And uh, they wanted to get a seal that would hold the grease inside the chain but not rob horsepower like the uh, the O-ring did. So they created a seal that um, that actually it twists in in between the side plates instead of being squished. An X-ring also creates four sealing points instead of just two sealing points like a like an O-ring. And what that does is it actually creates a little pocket where grease is trapped inside, so that helps reduce the friction. It also has four ceiling points that keeps the dirt out and the grease in better. So a byproduct is the chain lasts longer at the same time as being less friction and robs less horsepower. If you were to look at this X-ring, let's try and describe it here. I guess if you were to cut it and sort of look at a um, a side view of the ring, so you're cutting half, you're looking at a sectional view of the ring. It's actually like a, an X, isn't it? It's just like a like four rubber pieces coming out in an X pattern, and yeah. that's what you're talking about for those four seals. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. It's a side cut view of the seal, the X-ring. It it looks like an X. So they're more expensive when you buy them. What makes them more expensive? Is it the type of O-ring, the manufacturing of the O-ring, or is there something done to the chain that's different? No, it's a, it, well, it's a, it's a, it's a 
double whammy, if you if you will. Um, it not only is it more expensive to manufacture, you know, they they have to, you know, a, a lot of these are all uh, the chain manufacturing process is all automated, so that O-ring or that X-ring has to be put in to inside the chain in a particular position. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you know, it's much more complicated to make a, an X-ring chain than an O-ring chain. An O-ring chain, the, the O-ring goes in there, it can go in upside down, right side up. There isn't a right side up and an upside down on it, you know, whereas with an X-ring there is. But in addition to that, most of the X-ring chains are designed to be high performance. So that it's for a particular size and a particular power of a motorcycle. So they don't want to be extra heavy or heavier. They, they want to be the optimum weight and the, and reduce friction at the same time. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, multiple, you know, considerations when the chain is manufactured. Now, Robert, one of the other things I read about was about the pins themselves in the chain and how they've got the outside of the pin hardened and the inside of the pin soft so that the hardened outside, I guess, can take the, makes it more durable, yet the soft inside allows it to have some sort of flex and and, uh, shock absorption to it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's that's with our motocross race chains. Uh, there's a diehard pin treatment uh, that goes um, that creates a hard chromium carbide layer on the outer surface of the pin, but it leaves the inner core of the pin um, basically uh, uh, soft, so that um, the the chain can withstand the impact of a triple jump, but uh, it's not brittle; it won't break. Mm, and that's not used on the, on street chains. No, not at all. It's just on uh, motocross race chains. And is that because it's an, an expensive process? Well, you know, it's it's not necessarily a huge, um, you know, expense, but, you know, every little bit does increase the cost of the chain. So, uh, I, you know, it yes, I mean, it will increase the cost of the chain. And, and like on the street chains, um uh, you know, it, it, you don't have the impact that you do on the uh, uh, off-road chain. So, okay. Well, while I have you on here, I think it's best if we get some uh, advice for lubing our chains, since we're all going to have to do that with our chains, lubing and cleaning. So, what what tips do you have for lubing and cleaning the chain? Well, with with a non-O-ring chain like the motocross chains, for example, uh, uh, it's not as critical um, to you know, what chain cleaner or chain lube you want to use. But, uh, you know, you, you know, there's a number of um, chain cleaners on the market uh, and uh, most of them will do a pretty decent job. It, it's when um, you come to a sealed chain, like an O-ring chain or an X-ring chain, that's where you really have to pay more attention to what, uh, what you're using to clean the chain um, and what you're using to lube the chain because you don't want to you don't want to soak the chains for example because you don't want to soak it and have the lubrication on the inside of the chain get dissolved in any way. Um, the other thing that you want to pay attention to on an O-ring or X-ring chain is 
that um, you don't want to put a lubrication or a cleaner on it that will harden or crack a rubber X-ring or O-ring. So that means getting the proper cleaning uh, solvent and, and using the proper lube. Yeah, I mean, so I've, I've had people at trade shows and stuff come up to me and say, oh, I, I do a good job of cleaning my chain. I soak in gasoline, you know, and now <laughs> you don't want to do that. Or you don't want to soak in kerosene, you know, uh, you know that you don't want to soak the chain, you know. And uh, you can look on, uh, you know, most chain lubes uh, uh, manufacturers, they will make, uh, you know, a chain lube that is compatible with O-rings and X-rings. And it'll say right, it'll say right on the can that it's compatible with O-rings and X-rings. Well, the whole soaking of chain things, I mean, that comes from way back, doesn't it? When before there were sealed chains, um, you used to put it in oil and actually heat it so you get the oil in as deep as you can. Oh, right, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could... You know, the, the non-O-ring chains, yeah, I mean, some people used to take them off and soak them in oil. I mean, yeah, you can do that. The only thing that probably adds uh, is, you know, uh, DID has, um, you know, a number of different um, series of chains. And, you know, there's the, the VX series, which is our X-ring chain that's, you know, a very affordable X-ring chain. It's either available unplated or gold-plated. Um, you know, that's a, a high mileage chain that, you know, I think it's rated, uh, the 530 is rated up to 1,000 cc's, and I think the 428 is rated down to like a 350 uh, cc bike. That's a, a long-lasting, low-friction chain that is quite affordable. And on the flip side of that, we have our ZVMX series, which is a 520 up to a 530. The 530 is rated up to a 1,400cc bike. Actually, the 520 is rated up to a 1,200cc bike. Uh, it's the longest-lasting, high-performance, um, but it's not a race chain. I mean, it, it you know, it, it's a heavy-duty chains, but it's going to last you a long time. And it's for the large displacement bikes. And then, of course, we have our motocross race chains, and those are extremely popular. If you if you look at the supercross and motocross riders, um, I would say mm, I probably, you know, 60% of them are running DID race chains. Um, they're low friction, uh, high performance. They really perform. When you're running a, a higher quality chain like that, does it matter what sprockets you run? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, on, um, like the motocross, supercross racers, I mean, they're using, uh, like an aluminum rear sprocket, you know, of course, a, probably a chrome molly front sprocket. Um, but they're not... They're not looking at uh, a chain that's going to last 30,000 miles or sprockets that are going to last 30,000 miles. They want a lightweight, high-performance chain that's going to win races. Um, so, uh, whereas the, like, road racers, you know, we have our 520 ERV3 chain that is a MotoGP champion, um, you know, a Superbike champion. It's been around for a number of years now. It's lightweight, high performance for to last on a MotoGP bike, that uh, that's a strong chain. And the thing that we have, there's other chain manufacturers that 
sponsor a number of those teams, but it's not the chain that you can pull out of the box. With DID, it's a chain you can pull out of the box. Oh, I'm just going to ask you that. I was going to say, are they running actual stock chains? So you, you basically hand them one off the shelf. Yeah, yeah. Like um, uh, a lot of the Supercross guys right now, um, in fact, Ken Roxon won the outdoor with a, a DID 520MX chain. And that was that's a chain right out of the box. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Well, Robert, great to talk to you. A lot of good information in there. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Um, uh, thank you for the opportunity. And that was Robert Palmer from DID Chains, or DID Racing Chain. And you can find DID just about anywhere you buy uh, parts for our motorcycles. And you can visit their website online, didchain.com. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. They have 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's www.CyclePump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. We sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much. You can do a couple things to help us out if you'd like. You can drop by the website, click on the donate button. That's www.adventureriderradio.com. The donate button's real obvious there. Anything $10 or more will get you a sticker or on up, depending on how much you donate. And drop by our Facebook page. If you haven't liked it already, like it. And uh, you can always post something on there. Send us a note. Hey, don't forget, we also got another show called ARR Raw Roundtable Discussions. We've got Grant Johnson, Shirley Hardy Ricks, Brian Ricks, Graham Field, and Sam Manicom. Once a month, the show comes out, but you have to subscribe separately. So drop by the website and click on the Raw button and make sure you subscribe to that. Hey, and Raw also has a Facebook page too. If you don't know that already, drop by the Facebook page on Raw and like that, and you can be kept up to date with the things we put on there. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week.
Hi, this is Mary McGee, and you are listening to Adventure Riders Radio. (laughs) 